Um, can I just start with a warning? Um, I'm going to be brutally honest this evening. Is that okay? Um, I might say some things that will shock you or concern you about the well-being of the preacher standing in front of you. But um, I'm just going to go for brutal honesty. And, and the first thing I'm going to do is confess something to you. Um, I was speaking to Julian, I think, at some point earlier today, and I said to him, gosh, I'm tired. And I think the people are tired. First of all, can I just say, I am amazed there's so many people here after such a full weekend. I want to thank you, because I thought it was going to be me, the eldership, and Julian. So I want to thank you that you're here tonight. I said to Julian, I'm tired, the people are tired. Short of the miraculous intervention of God, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to get through this evening. Um, I think God might have heard my words and thought, okay, let's surprise her a bit, because I think you'll agree with me that that worship time was pretty epic, and that the presence of God is here in, uh, in such a beautiful, tangible way. Um, honestly, I'm utterly surprised, and that really may worry some of you, but um, anyway, I'm amazed that God's turned up, and I'm really grateful for that. I think we're going to have a really phenomenal evening. I feel so refreshed in my spirit, even standing up here, and I feel like there are tongues of fire hovering all around this room above your heads. I can see them. So I just, uh, as if it's possible to have any greater faith in this room, because honestly, the faith levels are sky high anyway, but I just want to confess my own lack of faith, shocking as that may seem. But say God is in this room, and um, I think it's going to be wild this evening. Um, Absolutely. I also think it's going to be wild because I've had about three prophetic confirmations about the preach that I wrote four days ago, feeling strongly for something that I was going to share um, today with you. And um, Julian stole half my sermon this morning, and throughout the worship time, I didn't know what he was going to be preaching on, but it turns out God had been speaking to us both. And then throughout this worship time, um, different points that I'm going to make were picked up on. So, yeah, God's got something up his sleeve. Where's Maddie? You're a powerhouse. You're a woman who carries fire and strength. I just want you to know that you got up onto this platform and the atmosphere changed. You carry something of God in an incredible way. And you're a woman with great destiny. You're a woman where um, there's not going to be a ceiling over you. You're a woman of greatness and destiny. And you, yeah, you're carrying an incredible anointing and calling. I feel like there's something for this church in this season, and um, I'm new to this church. I've just had the privilege of meeting the leadership team just this weekend, but, and this might sound odd for a church that's been running as long as this one has, and for a church that is so well established, but I keep feeling like there's something in my spirit that the next season is the coming of age of this church. It's, it's almost like the adulthood about to start and there's something of the season coming where there's going to be a confidence to reshape things that have been inherited there's going to be a confidence to step out in some dynamic and slightly wild ways 
and and really the best is yet to come and and God has put this church in the right hands for this season and I just want to honor this leadership team you guys are amazing as leaders Today, I want to speak, um, <laughs> I've entitled my sermon, if you like titles for sermons, I've entitled it as What the Devil Wishes You Didn't Know. And so we're going to do, uh, it's just some thoughts that I felt God gave me for the church. Um, we're going to jump about in a few different scriptures. Um, but I really feel like what I'm going to speak about this evening are, are keys. I'm sure there's many more things that the devil wishes we didn't know. But some of the things I'm going to talk about tonight are keys for victorious living. Um, the devil really wants to keep us down and defeated. And the battle, as Julian said this morning so well, is often in our heads because he is um, a being who works with smokes and mirrors. It's all illusion. <laughs> but if he can make us believe it, then he knows that he's going to keep us down. And so he wants to keep communicating lies to us because he is the father of all lies. Because he knows if we got the truth, if we believed it, if it really sunk in from our heads to our hearts, we are unstoppable for we've been made in the image of God. We are now in Christ and God has put his power and authority on us. And the whole world is waiting for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. And the devil knows that. And so this evening we're going to explore some things that I feel like are incredible keys. Um, and we're going to have fun together. Look, if joy hits you, feel free to laugh. If you want to lie down, feel free to. Uh, let's just see how it goes, okay? I want to pick up on, on what Julian was saying this morning. The first point won't be long because he really did steal most of it. Um, the first thing the devil wishes you didn't know is that you're better than you've believed. Second Corinthians says you're a new creation. And Julian really did cover this this morning. You're brand new. You're not a better version of your old self. You're not cleaner. You're not tidier. You're not prettier than your old self. You're a completely different substance. We're told that Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that we would become, we would become the righteousness of God. It's not like God has just cleaned us up or given us a cloak of righteousness. That, that imagery doesn't go far enough because the Bible tells us that he has literally transformed our very substance so that now our DNA, every cell of your body, has been made in the substance of righteousness. You're a new creation. And the devil, what he wants to do is to keep us distracted by our old self. Because if he can get us to keep being distracted, he knows he'll waste our time. 
and will become less effective. So what he does to us is that he keeps drawing us to old sin patterns. And he keeps saying, that's who you are. That's who you are. And he wants you to keep focusing on sin patterns and keep fighting sin patterns because he knows what you behold, you become like. And so what he's saying to us is to become holier, you better start looking at that sin and find an accountability partner so you can talk about that sin and you better keep praying about that sin. All that that does is that it distracts you with the sin rather than allowing you to fix your mind and heart on who you now are and allow the grace of God to enter you in to the fullness of that. The best way to overcome sin is not to focus on it, but is to focus on the exact opposite, the reality of who you are now. I was listening to Graham Cook preach. If you haven't heard of him, Google him. He's amazing. I think he's one of the best prophetic teachers in the world today. And he was preaching, and he he talked about this man who had come to him and said to him, Graham, will you please pray for me? I have an anger problem. And Graham said, absolutely not. And the man was like, what do you mean? That's really rude. And Graham said, I'm not going to pray for an anger problem. I refuse to look at you pessimistically, negatively looking at your old self. That takes on the identity of anger. You are not an angry man. You are a new creation. So what I will do is I will praise God for the revelation of the exact opposite in your life. I will thank God for your gentleness. I want to encourage you guys. This is going to be really practical, okay? I want to encourage you guys. If you have any kind of problem, whatever that may be, stop focusing on it. Trying to battle it as you look on it. It won't go away. Focus on the exact opposite in who you are. Get your friends around you to keep you accountable for the exact opposite. Get a group of gentleness going where you keep pulling out gentleness from one another. You were created in the image of God. Oh my goodness, there is so much Christ-likeness in you. Oh my goodness, there's so much gentleness in you because you reflect Jesus so well. That is who you now are. I promise you, if you do that as a church, if you dynamically change your accountability groups, sin won't be such a big issue anymore. The devil doesn't want you to believe that you are better than you've thought before. But it's true. You are an entirely new creation. In Nehemiah 4, there's such fascinating verses. Nehemiah is in the Old Testament Him and his friends are trying to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the wall of Jerusalem. It's been broken down, and here they are trying to rebuild it. And there's people around them who are just not impressed about what they're trying to do. And in Nehemiah 4, we read this. In verse 1, when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? 
See, that's what the enemy loves to do with us. He loves to come to us and mock us, talk about us as if we are rubbish. He loves to say, you are a burned out stone. You are a heap of rubbish. Do you think that God can use you? You're kidding if you think you're a new creation. What can he possibly do with rubbish? But listen to this. This is God's assessment in 1 Peter 2. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The devil will come and say, this stone is worthless. This stone is burned out and rubbish. And Jesus says, this is a living stone. This is precious. This is chosen. With this very stone that is rejected by the world and the enemy, I will do great things. You are a new creation. You are better than you believed. I was watching um, the movie Unbroken in the cinema last week. Um, If you haven't seen it, do. It's painful to watch, but it's amazing. I won't ruin the story, I promise. I just want to quote one line because it was so profound that it totally stunned me. The main character is speaking to his friend and he says to his friend, my brother always thought that I was better than I am. And his friend looks at him and says, who says you're not? And in that moment, I just sat stunned because I thought, my older brother Jesus, he always says I'm better than I think I am. And the question is, who says I'm not? And of course, our enemy stands and accuses and wants us to believe that we're not. Wants us to disagree with Jesus' assessment of us. But your older brother, Jesus, says you're better than you are, than you've ever thought. Who says you're not? You're better than you've ever believed. You're more than the world's estimations. You were created for greatness. If you flick with me to Esther 4, I told you we're going to do some jumping around. If you don't like flicking around, by the way, you can just listen to me read the verses. I promise I I won't make anything up. The story of Esther is a fascinating one. For those of you who aren't familiar with the book, she's a Jewish girl who's living outside of Jerusalem with the people of God. um, They've all been moved on to the Persian Empire. And what happens is the king throws a party. He has a wife called Vashti at the beginning of the story. He throws a party for many, 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 many days. 
him and all his men are thoroughly drunk, he decides to call for his wife to come and parade in front of all the men so that he can just boast about how beautiful she is. She unsurprisingly thinks, I'd rather not do that. She says no, and he throws her out because she disobeyed him. And what he does is he looks for a new bride, and he sends out an edict for all the beautiful virgins in the land to be brought to his palace. They go through months of training so that he can find the one woman who really pleases him. And Esther, this Jewish woman who's hidden her true identity, is chosen to be the next queen. Esther was an orphan. She was raised by her cousin Mordecai. And, um, and what happens is alongside the story of Esther, there's this trouble brewing in the palace as a man called Haman hates the Jews and he's a royal advisor, but he's devising a plan the whole time to destroy the Jews. And he comes up with this great plan and he gets the king to sign off on it. And it's basically a, a plan to kill all of the Jews in the land. And Mordecai gets wind of this plan, and he comes to Esther, and he says to Esther, you need to do something about this. You've got to intercede, because if not, you and all your people are going to die. And it's fascinating, because Esther's response to Mordecai is, basically, what on earth do you think I'm going to do? I've got no power here. You're more than the world's estimations. See, for Esther, the world required only one thing of women at that point, and it was beauty. There was no other expectation of a woman. There was no other understanding that a woman had anything else to offer other than her beauty. And Esther was raised in this culture where a woman was pretty much worthless unless she had some beauty, and other than that, she really had no value. And so Esther's been raised in this culture, bought into this lie from the world that all she is is a pretty face. She has nothing else to offer. And even if you're the queen, that really means nothing because the king holds all the power in his hand. And so Mordecai comes to Esther and he says to her, do something. And she's like, who? Me? I've got nothing to offer. Do you not realize I'm a woman, a pretty one, but I'm a woman. I've got nothing to bring. And in Esther 4, we read this amazing, amazing line. I'll just read one line. Mordecai says to Esther, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. What happens in that moment is Mordecai speaks courage into Esther and totally breaks all of her ideas of what she was made for. In that one moment, everything is turned around because Mordecai says to her, maybe, maybe you're not just a pretty face. Maybe what the world has said to you again and again and again about what is to be expected from you is all a lie. Maybe you were created for greatness. See, the devil wants us to buy into the world's estimations of us. The devil definitely doesn't want you to understand that you're greater than what the world estimates. In fact, you were created with greatness in mind. The world will tell us that really, we're just a smudge on the page. 
We're small, insignificant. Christians definitely are weird and probably a bit stupid if they've bought into the whole religion thing. You're definitely weak because you need the crutch of religion. You have nothing to offer. You've not got any wisdom to bring. The world will tell you you cannot really change anything in and of yourself. It's all a lie. You were created for greatness. And in that one moment when Mordecai speaks, Esther suddenly wakes up to who she was created to be. She's no longer making the excuse of, I've got nothing to bring. What am I going to do? The king hasn't called me into his presence. She says, you guys go away and fast and pray because in three days, no matter what happens, I'm going to the king. And what is incredible is that she changes the destiny of a nation because she wakes up to the greatness within her. You were created with greatness in mind. The world will speak words over you, words of insignificance. The enemy will say a big amen to every single one of those words. What I love is in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus speaks a better word over us. There's this amazing verse in Hebrews where I think it's Hebrews 12 and it talks about how Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was a guy in the Old Testament. He was a pure man, loved God. His brother Cain hated him and was jealous and killed him. And we're told in that story that the blood of Abel went into the ground and literally cried out for vengeance on Cain. (laughs) And yet we're told that rather than the cries of vengeance or judgment or condemnation, the blood of Jesus speaks better words over us, words of favor and greatness, words of righteousness and goodness, words of acceptance and love, words of affirmation, words of cheering us on. See, the blood of Jesus is consistently speaking a better word over you. Can you hear what it says? Speaking is active. It's not just that the blood of Jesus took away the negatives. It's that he is actively speaking, feeding into your soul the positives. For you were created with greatness in mind. You are more than the world's estimations. And Jesus' words over us are game-changing. The thing about Jesus' words is that Within the very substance of his words, there is the power to create what they demand and what they proclaim. See, when the disciples were with Jesus, they caught on to this fact. They they saw him say to the lame man, get up and walk. Jesus would speak those words, and in those very words, there was the power to accomplish that which he demanded. So there was power released to the lame man to get up and walk. He said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. And as he said it in that moment, there was power released for the man to stretch out his hand. 
He said to the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Those were not words of condemnation. They were words of freedom because as he said the words, go and sin no more, power was released to transform her life so that she could literally go and sin no more. So when Jesus speaks words over you, it's not wishful thinking. It's not niceties. It's not another pretty thing so that you can write it in your prophecy book and feel better about yourself. They are words of power. When someone prophesies over you and tells you what God thinks about you, Jesus' words have the power to accomplish that which they have demanded and proclaimed, which is all, which means all the prophetic words over your life in themselves carry the power to create in you what they've already said. Jesus speaks a better word over you. You were created for greatness. It's not about you trying really hard or conjuring something up. It's about us believing who we are now in Christ, a completely new creation. And it's about us turning off the sounds from the enemy and the world and coming into alignment with the word he speaks over us. I want to ask you again, Jesus is speaking a better word. Can you hear what he says? The Bible tells us his thoughts towards us are more than the sand on the seashore. He's got a heck of a lot to say about you if you'll just give him the time to listen. Hmm. We get to change the game for one another because we get to be conduits of Jesus' word to one another. We get to be Mordecai's for one another and start saying over one another, who knows whether you were created for such a time as this? Who knows whether you were created to change this city? Who knows whether you were created to go all over the world and see nations come alive to Christ? Who knows whether you were created to bring about complete financial change in this world? Who knows? We get to be the conduits of Jesus' word. I want to encourage you as a community, be conduits of the better word that Jesus speaks over one another. Every time you see someone, be asking, Papa, what are you saying over this person? What greatness, what gold can I pull out from them so that I can be a mirror to them? I can show them who they really are. You're better than you believed. You're more than the world's estimations. You're not outnumbered. The enemy loves us to feel isolated. He loves us to feel outnumbered. If it can get you into a difficult situation and make you feel like you're the only person in the world who's felt that, And that all of hell has broken loose over you. And you're this tiny person just trying to defend off all this attack. If he can make you believe that, then he knows you're already dead in the water. (laughs) 
The reality is he's lying. Let's just do some maths for a second. The Bible tells us that one third of the angels fell and rebelled against God. So that means even without the Trinity, which I'm sure you'll agree with me is a pretty big majority all on their own. But even without the Trinity, the enemy is already outnumbered two to one. That's a pretty good odds right there for a battle. Then the enemy has got all of us to contend with. And actually, because we're seated in Christ, we've got a pretty good vantage point too. On top of us and the other two-thirds of the angels, of course, then there's Father, Son, and Spirit who pretty much change the battle all by themselves. And so when you do the maths, it becomes extremely clear that it's not a fair fight for the devil. He wants you to believe that you're outnumbered when you've got God, more and more angels on your side. And yet so many Christians are crippled with this sense that there's so many demonic forces after them with no one to defend them at all. It's not you against hell. There's a heck of a lot of angels and God in between. He wants you to feel isolated as a person too. If he can separate you out from your community, all the better. No one in your church understands what you're going through. No one in all the world, in all of history, has ever had the pain that you've had. It's all you on your own because taking you out of the body weakens you. Just like taking your eyeball out of your socket might weaken it too. It's the problem that Elijah had. He gets all depressed. He hides in a cave. He starts getting angry at God and telling him how he's the only one. And God's like, there's 300 others. But the enemy is speaking to him, causing incredible crippling and depression because he's saying, you are the only one left. Isolation. It's always a lie. Always a lie. There's community all around you. He wants to isolate you from your community. He wants to get the maths about the battle totally wrong so that you feel like demons are after you. There's that beautiful moment in 2 Kings when Elisha the prophet has the army coming against him and his servant is freaking out because it's just the two of them in the house. And Elisha just says, God, open his eyes to see that there's more with us than are with them. Open our eyes. Weren't we just praying that a few minutes ago? Open our eyes. Because there, as the servant's eyes are opened, he sees chariots and chariots and chariots of fire. (coughs) Excuse me. Chariots of fire. Do you mind just opening that for me? Thank you. Chariots of fire with, thank you, with angels of fire, myriads and myriads and myriads of them, thousands upon thousands all around. The hills are on fire.
You're not alone. <laughs> You're not outnumbered. Number four, what the enemy wishes you didn't know. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. (laughs) Look, if the devil can't make us stop believing in God, he's going to try to distract us with something that's ineffective. He doesn't mind that route. And one thing that can be can be, not always, but can be ineffective, is depressed intercession. Oh, the burden is so heavy. It's so hard. The darkness is so great. But I will plow through, interceding for the nations. I will fast for 40 days, even though that makes me weak and grumpy and just tired. It means that I often fall asleep in the middle of my prayers, but nevertheless, I will fast because I must intercede for the nations. Look, I say this tongue-in-cheek. I really hope you'll forgive me if you're an intercessor. I think you're amazing. But you guys know what I'm talking about. Because even when for... For most of us who may not call ourselves intercessors, if we hit a big problem or a big challenge, there's a big moment where we're thinking, shall I fast and pray? Look, I've really got no problems with fasting and praying. I love praying and I fast occasionally, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying there's something wrong with that because I think scripture teaches it. But I think what's happened to the church is that we found one weapon and we've thought that's the only way to fight. If you do that, you're going to get beaten a lot. And this is why I say that. If you look in the Old Testament at the way David fought his battles, it's amazing because every single battle is fought and won in a different way from the one before it. Every time he goes for battle, he says to God, A, shall I go and fight? And B, how are we going to do it this time? One time it's, yep, what you need to do is all of you get up, run out, just go and fight. Another time it's, not a single one of you is to get up and fight. Just stand. You'll hear a sound in the trees. When you hear that, you can go forward because God's already slain the enemy. If they did the second time what they did the first, all of them would have been killed. But what we've done is we found one weapon and we thought, this is the way, this is the formula. And we wonder why we're not seeing breakthrough more regularly. It's because we're relying on formula rather than relying on what the Spirit's leading us into. I've got no problems with fasting and praying. But I'm saying there is another way to break through, and it's the context of joy and feasting, because that's littered all throughout the Bible. Nehemiah says, joy is strength. Joy is not frivolity. I've said this before. Joy is strength. If you're lacking power, I suggest you start looking at whether you're laughing enough. Laughter is an excellent way to partner with God. And there's this moment in Esther that I find fascinating because towards the end of the book, she's gone to the king. The Jews have fasted and prayed. The king has favor on on her and says, what can I do for you, Esther? I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, which is unheard of favor. And she says, I want to invite you to a party. And she does that three times. She just 
keeps inviting him to a feast. Because she understands that breakthrough is going to come in the context of feasting. Psalm 23 tells us that God loves to prepare a table for us before our enemies. So many of us are wandering off to the high places to pull down demonic strongholds where Jesus has prepared a feast for us and is saying, stop a second. Come here and feast. You don't need to go running after the demonic strongholds. Come and feast on my goodness. Come and feast on my faithfulness. Come and feast in my presence. Come in my presence. There is fullness of joy and joy is strength. And our intercession, I believe, will get a lot more happy and a lot more effective if we understand there's another weapon that we can use. We've just got to stay in line with the Spirit. There's going to be moments where you feel like God's saying fast. I'm not saying don't do that. But I'm saying if you always do that, you're going to get beaten. Because there's going to be moments where God says, press a pause on everything that's going on around you. The whirlwind is going to sound loud. That's okay. Right in the eye of the storm, there is a table of perfection set for you. Don't wander out of the eye of the storm. Stay in the goodness of his presence. I think it was yesterday morning, I was telling the story of when I was in a meeting and I got hit by joy, burst out laughing for an hour and a half. Was that yesterday morning? And then God showed me some angels on our wedding day, which was pretty cool. But I just want to tell you a little bit more about that story. Julian and I were actually in a restaurant having dinner with a couple of hundred other leaders who were at a, all at a conference in America. And um, someone walked past me and put their hand on my shoulder and the presence of God fell on me so powerfully. And, and that's when the howling laughter started in the middle of the restaurant while everyone else was having their dinner. See, Jesus really doesn't mind if you look dignified or not. Sometimes he likes to just play some fun games with you. Anyway, so I was howling with laughter, crying. Everyone else is eating their meals. Julian helped me to the car because by that point I couldn't walk very well. Um, we got into the car. The laughter continued. Um, there was an evening meeting to go to, so Julian helped me out of the car. If you've ever been to a meeting at Bethel, they do what's called a fire tunnel as you walk into the meeting. You can imagine I was a magnet for them. Julian abandoned me. It's true. All true. I lay in a heap on the floor, howling with laughter for the next hour. And one of the, one of the things that Jesus showed me as I was kind of in my mind saying, this, this really is embarrassing. No one else seems to be doing this. <laughs> what on earth are you doing, Jesus? And he, one of the things he showed me was that he was teaching me warfare. See, the months before that had been difficult. 
And at one point, Julian and I felt like we'd been caught up in a horrific storm with a whirlwind all around us. And Papa so kindly started speaking to me and telling me he was teaching me warfare. Started speaking to me, saying, next time you are in the whirlwind, this is what you're to do. Almost a year later, exactly, we found ourselves just a few months ago in another whirlwind. Worse than the first. And I started thinking, I can't do this again. And then I remembered what Papa had said. So I wrote down on a piece of paper just how disastrous and hopeless the situation was. I wrote down on that piece of paper all the lies that were going through my head about whether he was really good, whether he really loves me and has my back. And I did the only thing I knew how to do. I stood on that piece of paper and I put some worship music on and I began to worship. And I decided I would worship for as long as it took to get into a happy place in God. It took a couple of hours. But I worshipped and worshipped initially through tears. Until eventually I was full of laughter and joy and able to laugh at the lies I was standing on. Something broke in that moment, and I didn't look back after that. I want to teach you warfare. It's not about depression and intensity. It's not about going to the mountaintops. It's about writing the hopelessness, the darkness, the lies on a piece of paper, and then working to get really happy in God until you're so full of joy that you can speak into being that which is not there already because that's who our God is. The best context for breakthrough is feasting and joy. One last thing on this because I think it's a helpful key. The devil is always playing spiritual chicken with us. It's true. It's just often we don't recognize it. Because the thing is, the devil is running straight for you most of the time. You get some revelation in God that's wonderful. You get a promise that you're going to go for. So you start on this track. And at some point, the enemy is going to think, oh, they're getting a bit too far down that track. So what the enemy likes to do is come at you head-on collision style, playing a game of spiritual chicken. Because what the enemy bets is that you are going to move first. I want to tell you, joy is a really good way of not moving. When you know what God has said about who you are, when you know what God has said about who he is, when you know what God has said about your circumstance, I want you to stand firm on what has been revealed to you in Christ and then get so intoxicated with joy so that the game of spiritual chicken doesn't frighten you anymore and you stand your ground. Because what if you didn't move first? If you stand your ground, I tell you what, the enemy will eventually move. And you'll just step into your breakthrough. 
For too long, the church has been sucked into this game of spiritual chicken and we move first. And we wonder why breakthrough doesn't come. Stand your ground. Know what he says about who he is. Know what he says about you. Know what he says about your circumstance. Stand your ground. It's by Ephesians 6, when it talks about warfare, consistently repeats the word stand. Because really in warfare, that's all you need to do. He's coming at me head on. Stand your ground. He will move. Last one. Because I just can't end a weekend on the Father heart without saying this. The devil wishes you didn't know that the Father is kinder than you've ever dared believe. His kindness is overwhelming. Exactly. I like that sound. Whoever is in this side, you're brilliant. Easy drinkers. It's good. (laughs) Yeah, enjoy him. He really is kinder than you dare believe. He really is kinder than the religious spirit wants us to believe. Surely there's some judgment left in him. Surely there's some anger, some wrath that he's just hidden somewhere so that he can surprise us with this. In a weak moment, he can pounce on us. He is kinder than we dare believe. His tenderness is breathtaking. He lifts up the broken and the poor from the dust seats them with princes. He is kinder than you've ever dared believe. Every time the devil can, he wants to persuade us that God really isn't that good. He did it in the Garden of Eden with Eve. God's holding out on you. He's done it all throughout scripture. All throughout history. He's not that kind, is what the enemy wants us to believe. James tells us, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. And the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all of the days of my life. His goodness is inescapable. I'm eight years older than my younger sister. From the time she could walk, it was like having a shadow. 
there was nowhere in the house I could go. She still remembers this. She laughs about it. I was relatively traumatized because I was desperately trying to get away from this creature who would not leave me alone, even when all my friends came round to my house and I was desperately trying to look cool as a teenager. Here was my little sister banging on my bedroom door. Let me in, let me in. I want to come and play too. I literally would have to go into my bedroom and lock the door to get away from her until she stole the key. <laughs> True story. His goodness is like that. We were singing in that song, your love chases me, right? <laughs> I love that. You cannot get away from his goodness, his mercy, his affection, his kindness. It is following you all the days of your life. There is never a moment where goodness and mercy does not follow you. There is never a moment where his kindness does not follow you. Say it together. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely, goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. <laughs> now that's something to get happy about. <laughs> I know it's getting late. <laughs> oh dear. You are a new creation. Your very substance has been changed. <laughs> you were brand new. You're not a sinner. You do not have any sin problems. You can start thanking God for the opposite. That is true and being ever increasingly revealed in you. You are much greater than the world's estimations. You were created with greatness and destiny in mind. Jesus is consistently speaking a better word over you. You are not outnumbered. You have been given eyes to see into heavenly places. Huh. So you get to see the angelic and the wonderful king on his throne. You are not alone. You are not outnumbered. There is a table of feasting 
prepared for you even in the eye of the storm. There is breakthrough for you in feasting, and there is great joy and strength available to you. And the one you love is kinder than you dare believe. And goodness and mercy will follow you every moment of your life. <laughs> Come on, it's funny. <laughs>